episode number 64. Because it says, if the words of Torah are empty, the emptiness comes from you. Welcome to the Torah Podcast. Lessons from authentic Judaism. Get the tools and inspiration you need for personal growth. Hosted by Rabbi Mitterhoff. Shalom, this is Rabbi Eliyahu Mitterhoff with this week's Torah Podcast. The Torah portion of the week is Pinchas, Love and Hate in Orthodox Judaism, Torah True Values, a powerful parable about the debt collectors, a great story about the briskarav, and peace in your home creating dialogue. And now, the Torah portion of the week, with novel ideas from the classic commentaries. So after last week's podcast where I denounced homosexuality, I got some negative feedback. Some of the comments called me an ignoramus, a bigot, anti-Semite anti-Jewish, a rant against humanity. So therefore, I decided to start this week's podcast explaining a little bit about where I'm coming from and what are some of the basic foundations of Orthodox Judaism. So first and foremost, we hold that the written Torah and the oral Torah were both given at Sinai. And the words are perfect, and there are no extra words and no extra ideas. I want to quote you here from the Dark Gemara, where Yitzchak Konfaton says like this, the basic principle of all intensive study is to be extremely exacting with the language of the text. One must try to see if there's any extra words, repetitive subjects. If there's a new idea, there has to always be a new idea. And you have to examine every change in language, law, or subject matter between the current text and another text. In other words, everything has to fit perfectly. He continues and says, In the beginning of your study, accept as a premise and make part of your thinking that each and every speaker, whether he asks or answers a question, is extremely intelligent. All their words are words of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. They do not contain something crooked or twisted. And this is what our rabbis meant when they said, Are we dealing with fools? Therefore, you must look deeply into the words and see if they have meaning and if they're strong or if they're weak. And it's up to us to validate the logic behind their words and to correct their statements in a way that it becomes pleasing and acceptable and reasonable to the mind. We should never commit the great sin and crime of ascribing bad or weak reasoning to their words, because none of their words are erroneous. For all of them are the words of the living God. Because it says, if the words of Torah are empty, the emptiness comes from you. This is the basis and the foundation of Orthodox Judaism. It's our job to figure out what the Torah is saying. If we don't understand, that means that we don't understand. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with the text. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with the Torah. It means we're lacking. The greatest minds in history, for thousands of years, spent hours and hours toiling over the text of the Gemara and the Torah. And they did it day and night. And all the explanations and ways of viewing things are all based on the greatest minds who put their lives on the line for what the text was saying. It says the Ramoah had 256 possibilities in a text before he gave the halakha, before he gave the law. 256 ways of looking at it. So when the world says, oh, there's many opinions. What do you mean many opinions? It's opinions of experts, of professionals. And that's why it's our obligation to justify the text. Because if we don't understand it, it means we're missing an understanding. And our whole tradition is based on the kava, the honor that we give to our forefathers and the tradition that we receive from them. And if we equate ourselves to be on their level, to make up new laws and to change things, we're making a big mistake. So the verse in Parshish Pechas says like this, 
And Moses did as Hashem commanded him, and he took Yeshua. What does Rashi explain means he took Yeshua? He's about to give Yeshua the position of taking over the Jewish people. So Rashi says he took him and influenced him with words, and he informed him of the reward of the Jewish people's leaders in the world to come. So the Chafetz Chaim explains, In each generation, our nation's leaders must faithfully stand guard, making sure that Klai Yisrael follows the path of Torah and observes all the mitzvahs of Hashem exactly as it was in the days of Moshe Rabbeinu, and not one iota less. And the reward for doing so is prepared for them. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu told Yeshua, It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. But in the end, you're going to have tremendous reward. Reward for what? For faithfully guarding exactly every single word of the Torah. The Torah Shebiktav, the written Torah, and the Torah Shebaal And this is the foundation of orthodoxy, which differentiates us between the conservatives and the reformed. Now the truth is I'm not really blaming them. I feel that the conservative and the reformed were miseducated. They were not taught by their teachers to give the proper value to the text. And when that happens, you never really see the beauty of the Torah. The beauty only comes when you understand that it's all perfect and it all has to fit. And then you understand the new ideas that are coming out and the foundations that the rabbis were trying to give over. I once asked Rav Chaim Zimmerman, who was one of the Gedoli Ador, one of the great Torah scholars of our time, is it better to remember the Gemara word by word? Or is it better to remember it conceptually? There's a statement and there's a difficulty. There's an answer to a difficulty. He answered me. There's no difference. These are the words that express the concepts. There is no better way to express the concepts. So you're going to wind up remembering it word for word anyway. Because if you want to understand the concepts, you have to be fixated on the words. And this is the job of every Jewish leader in every generation. To make sure the tradition continues. And this is what kept the Jewish people alive to date, that we're still around as a people. It's only because of our pure adherence to the Torah, the way it was handed down from Mount Sinai. So at the end of last week's Parsha, the verses say like this, And behold, a man of the children of Israel came and brought the Mennonite woman near to his brothers before the eyes of Moses and before the eyes of the entire assembly of the children of Israel. What happened? Zimri, the prince of Shimon, brought this woman, Cosby, the daughter of Tzur, the king's daughter, the Midianite king's daughter. He brought her into the tent in front of everybody. And he's going into sin with her. So the verse says, Pinchas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron Cohen, stood up and took his spear in his hand. And he followed them into the tent and he pierced them both where they were being together. He stuck the spear through both of them and they stuck together. And the plague was halted from upon the Jewish people. But those who died were 24,000. He stopped the plague. So the continuation of this, with the first Pasuk of this week's Parsha says, Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, Pechas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, a Kohen, turn back my wrath from upon the children of Israel, when he zealously avenged my vengeance among them. So I did not consume the children of Israel my vengeance. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his offspring a covenant of eternal priesthood. Because he took the vengeance for his God, and he atoned for the children of Israel. So this is the law of the zealot. In such a case, in front of ten men, they see another man do such a thing. One could come in and take the law in his own hands and kill them. This is the law in the written Torah itself. 
So the mom explains it. Pechas risked his life. Why? Because of three things. First of all, he risked the retaliation of all of Zimri's tribe, all of Shimon. Second of all, he had to make sure he caught them together during the act. Because if not, he would be considered a murderer. And third of all, he killed the daughter of the king of Midian. But he didn't care because he was working for God. The verse says, God is a God of vengeance. And Pechas took it to his own hands and brought down the vengeance of God. The question is, what is this vengeance? So it's not what we think it is. So Revolbi explains, it's not sweet revenge. It's nothing personal. He was just doing what the Torah said to do. Nothing personal. The Gemara in Yoma 22b says, A Talmud Chacham who does not take vengeance like a snake is not a true Talmud Chacham. Because it says in the verse of Tehillim, Hashem sinura. Those who love Hashem despise evil. They will do everything in their power to eradicate evil from society. And if not, they're not considered a true Tamachachim, a true Torah scholar. But Rav Chaim Mabrisk asks a difficulty. He says, what's going on here? We know usually that God always grants reward and punishment, mita kenegin mita, measure for measure. But here we see Pinchas. He kills somebody. And what's his reward? The covenant of peace. So how can he connect these two things? So the answer is, is that Pinchas Kavana, his intention was to save the Jewish people. Like the verse says, he's turned back my wrath from upon the children of Israel. And because of him, I did not annihilate the children of Israel. Who knows how many would have died if he didn't do this act. And he goes on to explain, it's not that he was a fanatic. And it's not that he was self-righteous and arrogant. He had a sincere desire to improve the society. He had a sincere desire to save the Jewish people and to improve society, the continuation of the Jewish people. And he gives an example. If you have a housewife and a cat in the house, both of them don't want any mice around. But the housewife sincerely wishes that there's no mice. But the cat, on the other hand, he wants the mice and then he wants to kill the mice. So he's happy to see the mice. He says the cat is like a self-righteous person. A person who's religious just because he wants to show how great he is, how right he is, how correct he is. That has nothing to do with real religion. So this is a major point. There are two parts to religion. There's been Adam Lechavero, there's been Adam Lamako. Between man and man, and between man and God. And all of them are written in the Torah. And it's known in Chazal. The Pechas, Ben Elezer, Ben Aaron a Kohen. He had the qualities of Aaron which was a lover of peace, a pursuer of peace. He loved God's creatures and a drawer of man to Torah. He spent all his days making shalom bias. Aaron the Cohen spent all his days making shalom bias, peace between husband and wife. He had no personal hate against Zimri. His whole goal was just for the honor of God. And Rav Hanak Leibowitz points out, where do we see that? Because when Pinchas saw what happened, he didn't just run right away with the spear. He first went to Moses to make sure what the halacha was. It's true he had strong emotions. And he was jealous for God. But still, he used his intelligence. What does it say in the Torah? It was rational. He explains. A true Kanai is one who possesses both an all-encompassing devotion to Hashem and an equally overwhelming love for fellow Jews. Zeal and devotion can't apply to just half the Torah. 
to Shabbos and Kashris and modesty and other mitzvahs that are just between man and God, but they also must be matched equally with love, kindness, compassion, and consideration to other people. Otherwise, it's your own agenda. But it's not a contradiction. Rechaim Shmuel explains, he was able to kill Zimri, but still he was considered the son of Aaron. He had love for the Jewish people. Also by Avram and Yishmael, one place it says he loathed him, he hated Yishmael because of his sins. Another place it says the one who you love. And Avram didn't know if he was speaking about Yitzchak or speaking about Yishmael. Justice can only come from a place of love. And all the mitzvahs between Adam Lamakom between man and God have to come from a place of love between man and man. And if that's not happening, it's wrong. That's why they say orthodox or extremist. Which orthodox or extremist? The ones that love their fellow man? No, it's a couple of guys that don't care about other people and they're using religion in a self-righteous way. Gives religion a bad name. Just because we follow the laws of the Torah and we're exacting in them, and we're against homosexuality because it's written clearly in the Torah that it is forbidden. Doesn't mean we hate people. Doesn't mean we're against people. We're trying to do what the Torah says. And not only that, but you have to even be more careful when a person is putting out judgment or judging people. Rebchaim Shmuelovich brings down the Gemara in Yom 54b that explains that when the Jews came into the base of Migdash, they saw the Cheruvim hugging each other. These angel-like forms above the tabernacle. And when they're hugging each other, it's a sign that God is close to us. So what's going on? At the time of the destruction of the temple, God is close to us? The answer is yes. That's when he's the closest. Because when God gives out punishment, he comes close to us. He loves us. He doesn't hate us. He hates our sins. Also, when the wife of Lot looked back down to Dome, and she turned into a pillar of salt, what did she see? She saw the Shekhinah. God's presence was there while Saddam was being destroyed. When God punishes us, this vengeance of God is coming out of love. It's to eradicate evil from the world. And all the more so if we come to punish or to speak bad, we have to love the people. But the halacha is the halacha. The law is the law. We all have to follow the Torah. And if the people are not following the Torah, something has to be done about it. There was a whole scandal in the news this week that one of the Chavre Knesset claimed that the conservative and reformed Jews are like Gentiles. Everybody was screaming, how can he say such a thing? Well, you should know, it's a Mephorish Mishnah Brewer, the Chavit Chaim, the leader of the Jewish people, the one who loved the Jewish people. And the Jewish people loved him. What does it say? That someone, for example, who is Machal Shabbos B'Farhesia, a person who drives the shoe on Shabbos, Dinu ka'akum, he has a din like a Gentile, he's considered a Gentile, not Jewish. Ve'enu mistarif to the minion, and the aspect that he can no longer be part of a minion. A guy drives to shul on Shabbos, he cannot be part of the minion. What, he's not Jewish? Of course he's Jewish. He's considered, according to the law, not Jewish. Do we hate the guy? No, we don't hate the guy. We hate the way he's acting. Do we want to educate him? Of course we want to educate him. But he doesn't want to be educated. He wants to drive to Shul on Shabbos. Or the next Mishnah Brewer says, Call me Shul Kofi B'Torah, someone who does not accept Torah Shabbat Pei. Ain't him a star for the call Devar He cannot be added to anything that requires holiness. He can't participate. Why? Because he doesn't believe in the Torah Shabbat Pei. He's a Saduki. 
And this is not all new promise, it's an old promise, going on for thousands of years. But this is the way that we showmered the Torah. This is the way that we protected ourselves. This is why the Jewish people are still here, and the religious people are still here, and Torah is still being learned. Because there's rules. Are the rules coming from hate? No. The rules are coming from love. Look at it the opposite way. Why is this guy driving to shul? He wants to do it his way. So do it your way, but leave us alone. The women at the wall, they want to read from a safer Torah. But they can't. It's not the halacha. It's not what the Torah says. It's not what God wants. I don't understand why they want to read at the wall. If they have a new religion, let them get a new wall. Why need the old wall? They want to twist everything to fit them. Are they experts in learning? Do they give cover to what the Torah says? Do they give honor? Are they greater than the sages that spent their days and nights toiling in the learning, trying to understand the words of God instead of pushing their own trip? Somebody leaves a comment from one of the Torah sages of today. Who's that? A rabbi who's a homosexual. Are you kidding me? You can't do that act and still be called a rabbi. And they want to twist the whole Torah around. It's arrogant and it's self-serving. The Torah says, Mephorah, you cannot do acts like that. It's written clear as a bell. You want to twist the whole Torah? Leave the Torah alone. Go do what you want to do. What's it have to do with Torah? You feel good being Jewish. You want to schlep it in. Now, just because I'm saying these things, or other rabbis say these things, it doesn't mean we hate. We hate evil. We don't hate the people. Of course you would macabre the guy. Of course you'd re-educate them and bring them into the fold and explain to them. Because the real Tamachacham has both qualities. Sinurai hates evil, but he loves people. You have to be one of the Talmidim of Aaron and Cohen. Or have Shalom, loving people. Between man and God, or between man and man. And because of this quality, that's why Pechas received what? A bris shalom. Now, what does bris shalom mean? So Chazal explains it to mean life. Long life, the power of life. Different shitas, but some say Pechas lived for over 300 years. Some say even further than that. And if according to the shita that says that Pechas was Eliyahu, he never died. So the Swano explains, He who makes peace in the heights, because indeed... All diminished of life is caused as a result of opposing conflicting forces. Now, this blessing of peace was fulfilled by Pinchas, who lived much longer than his contemporaries. Because he didn't have conflicting forces. He was shalem. He was complete. He had both the love of man and the love of God. That's the balanced person. Not just the love of God and he's a nasty guy. And not just the love of man and everything goes. So I just want to end up with the Shem Mishmur. He explains, what was going on with Zimri? What was he thinking? So the Gemara in Nazir 23b says like this, Both Tamar and Zimri committed adultery. Was Tamar. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Yehuda and wound up living with Yehuda. It was adultery. And Zimri went with Kosbi. Adultery. Tamar committed adultery and gave birth to kings and prophets. And Zimri committed adultery. And on his account, many tens of thousands of Yisrael perished. That's what the Gemara says. So what's the difference between them? So Chazal tells us that Zimri was trying to do an Avera Lishma. He wanted to live with this woman to bring out holy children from her. He saw a light inside of her. Al when Adam and Rishon sinned, all the light went over the world. And this light can be redeemed, and that's what he was trying to do. And the tribe of Shimon understood that. And that's why Pinchas was scared that they're going to kill him. And what did they say about Pinchas? They were making fun of him. We know that Pinchas also came from Yisrael. And we know that one of Yisrael's names told us that he fattened calves for idol worship. So by idol worship, it's very important that the calf is big and fat. By us, by the Mizbech, it doesn't have to be fat. 
So what were they saying? They thought, Pinchas, you're looking at Zimri externally. Your grandfather fattened calves for Avodazar. Everything was external. You don't see the real intention. But what did the Pusik say? No, he was from Aaron Cohen. The epitome of between man and man. A middleman between people. Involved with the relationships of one person to another. And Pinchas saw deeper. He saw that Zimri wasn't 100% L'Shem Shemayim. He was acting out of his own selfish desires. And that's why he killed him. And what's interesting, Chazal tells us that Eliyahu, which is the reincarnation of Pechas, is Malach Abris. The angel of Eliyahu comes to every single bris mila. Why? Because Pechas atoned for sexual sin by killing Zimri and stopping the plague and getting the Jewish people to go on the right path. Because the bris is the part of the body that has to do with sexuality. And on the eighth day, we take the child and we do the bris. And this is Shaykh Leliao and it's Shaykh Lepinkas. We take our little boy that we love and we do an act that can only be explained by our connection to the Creator, Ben Adam Lamako. Because who in their right mind would do such an act? If it wasn't written in the Torah, if we weren't Jews who believed in the Torah, if we weren't a people who had a tradition, we would never do a bris milah. But not everything is between man and man. As Jews, we live in two worlds. Our relationship to God and our relationship to man. And they both have to be fulfilled completely. Beshlemus. And that's what gives us life. The bris is the beginning of the child's life. And the Svorno explains, death is caused by two forces going in an opposite direction. But the bris shalom, the covenant of life, is when those two forces go in the same direction, with the same intensity, and the same balance of what it means to be a Torah true Jew. Here is a powerful parable. Open your mind and help you reach your potential. The Magid the asks, Why is it that Pechas got the Brith of Shalom and Moshe Rabbeinu didn't get the Brith of Shalom? Many times Moshe stood up against the Jewish people and told them the right way to go and fought for the truth. So he wants to explain with a muscle. One time, one person had many creditors. And each time the creditors would come, his friends would come and try to defend him and they would offer them excuses and delay the payment to a different day. But one time the creditors came back and somehow they got through everybody and they got into the guy. They said, pay up now. So one of the friends came in and said, okay, he'll pay now. But you have to erase some of these debts. Bring it down. He's in such bad shape. It's so long ago. And he speaks to the creditors and he gets them to bring the price way down. So that friend did more than all the other friends. Even though the other friends stopped the debtors from coming and he gave him more time. But in the end, this one friend brought the debt down. So too the Jewish people. The Jewish people did the sin of the eagle, the golden calf, idol worship. And there was dues to pay. So Moshe Rabbeinu kept defending them and pushing it off. Until Pechas came along, and he erased the debt completely. So the verse says, the daughters of Slavcha drew near. So the Midrash Rabbah explains that in that generation, the woman would always come and fix up the breaches of the observance that the men did not keep. We know when Aaron Cohen told them to get the rings from their wives' ears, the woman refused to give the gold, to build the golden calf. And here in this case, the men didn't want to go into Eretz Yisrael. But the Pazik says the daughters of Slavka drew near. They wanted to go into Eretz Yisrael. So one time the Briskarav 
in Europe during the time of the Enlightenment was in Shul on Yom Kippur. So the people from Enlightenment, they wanted to make a choir. So they made a choir they're going to sing on Yom Kippur. And this was to entice the congregation to follow in their ways. So what happened? The choir stood up to start to sing, and the briskarab yelled, Sit down! So they sat down. Then the community leaders in the front of the room, they taught him to sing. So they got up to sing. The briskarab again said, Sit down! So they sat down. And this continued for a while. At a certain point, the briskarab turned to the ladies section and cried out, Jewish women! They're trying to destroy the toy, are you keeping silent? Immediately, the woman bent over and reprimanded their husbands. As a result, the town leaders gave up, and the breach was closed. Learn to give, love, and communicate. This is Peace in Your Home. Rav Simcha Cohen speaks about dialogue in the home. Man is a creature of speech, a Baal Madaber, a living thing that speaks. And he brings Rav Volba, who explains, speech was specifically created for the forming of ties and closeness. And this is why if somebody uses speech to distance people, Chazal says he's not received before the Divine Presence. Mockers, liars, flatterers, and slanders. Four groups that are not received by the Divine Presence. And all the more so a married couple. Through speech, each partner gets to express his feelings. They can ask for things. They can unburden themselves from the troubles and the worries. And it creates an emotional bond. But if there's a lack of dialogue between the couple, so alienation develops. They live in the same house, they take care of the same kids, but they have no connection, and it breeds bad feelings. It's like people say, we're not on speaking terms. And if one of the couple is speaking to the other, one of the other one's not paying attention, or it takes them five minutes to answer, it's going to do damage. But people are oblivious to how much their words are affecting. If you had to go speak on national television, you'd be very careful with your words. But in the house, you use whatever words you want. We know that professional speakers spend tons of time trying to develop their ability to speak, to communicate. How loud they speak, with the right intonation, how they dress. It's all part of communication. So if you want to communicate in your house, the same thing. You have to have a good feeling towards the person you're speaking to. You have to be pleasant and smiling and look well and look good. And you have to believe in what you're saying. And if not, you have a breakdown of communication. And with Yeruchim even goes as far to say that if you speak in a matter that the person wants to listen to you, you're fulfilling the mitzvah, you should love your neighbor as yourself. He says if you write a letter to someone, you should write it on beautiful paper, good ink, clear penmanship, write slowly. It's a mitzvah. So two married couples, when they want to communicate, they should do it in the proper way. But the problem is that a man's idea of conversation and a woman's idea of conversation are two different things. Man has a conversation because he wants to communicate something. He's trying to express himself. He's trying to tell his wife something. A woman, the conversation is the goal itself. They're just talking in order to talk, but that's the way they're built. The Gemara says, 10 kavim of sicha, of conversation, were given into the world, and 9 kavim were given to the woman. You could have a classic example like this. The woman says, why don't you ever talk to me? The man says, I do. He says, well, when was the last time we spoke? He says, a half hour ago. I asked you where David's shoes were. I asked you what happened at the dentist with Libby's teeth. So she starts to cry. You see, you never talk to me. You only speak when there's something you take care of. We never have a real conversation. But the answer is that Hashem built women like this in order they can raise their children properly. Studies even show that women 
who speak to their kids when they're little, even though they don't understand. They have a higher level of intelligence. We even know one of the midwives who was married was called Pua. She spoke to the baby. So there's a reason why a woman needs to speak more. And Chazal says, Whoever sleeps in the same chamber in which a man and a wife reside, of him, Scripture says, you expel the wives of my people from their pleasurable house. And the Marashua explains there, the problem is they'll be embarrassed to speak together. She never make a situation where you're stopping a couple from speaking with each other. You're doing nezek, you're doing damage. The Chazanish says, it's a Torah obligation for a man to speak to his wife. And that's why it says, he will be exempt from his house for one year, and he should rejoice with his wife he has taken. Because when you have conversation, what are you saying? I'm interested in you. I can learn from you. It's pleasant to be around you. And it's not that the wife wants to self-indulge. She really needs you to listen to her. Sometimes the wife even gets jealous if the husband's all of a sudden talking on the phone, comes in the house and calls somebody and speaks to them for a half hour. She gets upset. She didn't even want to speak to him. But when she saw him speaking to somebody else, she got upset. Because that dormant need inside of her gets awakened. So what should a man do? During the day, before he comes home, he should think of things that he's going to tell his wife. He sees this thing, oh, that would be interesting to tell my wife. Or he reads this article, or we could talk about that. He should find things that she wants to speak about. And this way, he'll bring peace into his home. Okay, that's it for this week's Torah Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share it with your friends, and please leave comments. Thank you for listening. To get more enthusiasm for your Judaism, become a free member at globalyeshiva.com.